Chapter 11 His sterility was infinite. It was part of the ecstasy. E. M. Cioran, Le Mauvais Demiurge, Paris, Gallimard, 1969. Pensée étranglée. The conversation at Pilates had shown me the public belbow, but a keen observer would have been able to sense the melancholy behind the sarcasm. Not that Belbo's sarcasm was the mask. The mask, perhaps, was the private confessing he did, or perhaps his melancholy itself was the mask, a contrivance to hide a deeper melancholy. There is a document in which he tried to fictionalize what he told me about his job when I went to Garamond the next day. It contains all his precision and passion, the disappointment of an editor who could write only through others while yearning for creativity of his own. It also has the moral severity that led him to punish himself for desiring something to which he did not feel entitled. Though he painted his desire in pathetic and garish hues, I never knew a man who could pity himself with such contempt. File name, Seven Seas Jim Tomorrow, see young Chinti. One, good monograph, scholarly, perhaps a bit too scholarly. Two, in the conclusion, the comparison between Catullus the Poeti Novi in today's avant-garde is the best part. 3. Why not make this the introduction? 4. Convince him. He'll say that such flights of fancy don't belong in a philological series. He's afraid of alienating his professor, who is supposed to write the authoritative preface. A brilliant idea in the last two pages might go unnoticed, but at the beginning it would be too conspicuous. It would irritate the academic powers that be. 5. If, however, it is put into italics, in a conversational form, separate from the actual scholarship, then the hypothesis remains only a hypothesis and doesn't undermine the seriousness of the work, and readers will be captivated at once. They'll approach the book in a totally different way. Am I urging him to an act of freedom, or am I using him to write my own book? Transforming books with a word here, a word there? Demiurge for the work of others? Tapping at the hardened clay, at the statue someone else has already carved? instead of taking soft clay and molding my own. Give Moses the right tap with a hammer and he'll talk. See William S. I've looked at your work. Not bad. It has tension, imagination. Is this the first piece you've written? No, I wrote another tragedy. It's the story of two lovers in Verona who... Oh, let's talk about this piece first, Mr. S. I was wondering why you said it in France. May I suggest Denmark? It wouldn't require much work... If you just change two or three names and turn the Chateau of Chalon-sur-Marne into, say, the Castle of Elsinore. In a Nordic-Protestant atmosphere, in the shadow of Kierkegaard, so to speak, all these existential overtones... Perhaps you're right. I think I am. The work might need a little touching up stylistically. Nothing drastic. The barber snips before he holds up the mirror for you, so to speak. The father's ghost, for example. Why at the end? I'd put him at the beginning. That way the father's warning helps motivate the young prince's behavior, and it establishes the conflict with the mother. Hmm, good idea. I'd only have to move one scene. Exactly. Now style. This passage here, where the prince turns to the audience and begins his monologue on action and inaction. It's a nice speech, but he doesn't sound, well, troubled enough. To act or not to act, this is my problem. I would say not my problem, but the question. That is the question. You see what I mean? It's not so much his individual problem as it is the whole question of existence, the question whether to be or not to be.
If you fill the world with children who do not bear your name, no one will know they are yours. If you fill the world with children who do not bear your name, no one will know they are yours, like being God in plain clothes. You are God, you wander through the city, you hear people talking about you, God this, God that, what a wonderful universe this is, and how elegant the law of gravity, and you smile to yourself behind your fake beard. No, better to go without a beard, because in a beard God is immediately recognizable. You soliloquize, God is always soliloquizing. Here I am, the one, and they don't know it. If a pedestrian bumps into you in the street, or even insults you, you humbly apologize and move on, even though you're God and with a snap of your fingers can turn the world to ashes. But infinitely powerful as you are, you can afford to be long-suffering. A novel about God incognito. No, if I thought of it, somebody else must have already done it. You're an author, not yet aware of your powers. The woman you loved has betrayed you, life for you no longer has meaning, so one day, to forget, you take a trip on the Titanic under shipwrecked in the South Seas. You are picked up, the sole survivor, by a pirogue full of natives, and spend long years, forgotten by the outside world, on this island inhabited only by Papuans. Girls serenade you with languorous songs, their swaying breasts barely covered by necklaces of pua blossoms. They call you Jim. They call all white men Jim. And one night an amber-skinned girl slips into your hut and says, I yours, I with you. How nice, to lie there in the evening on the veranda and look up at the southern cross while she fans your brow. You live by the cycle of dawn and sunset, and know nothing else. One day a motorboat arrives with some Dutchmen aboard. You learn that ten years have passed. You could go away with these Dutchmen, but you refuse. You start a business trading coconuts. You supervise the hemp harvest. The natives work for you, you sail from island to island, and everyone calls you Seven Seas Jim. A Portuguese adventurer, ruined by drink, comes to work with you and redeems himself. By now you're the talk of the Sunda. You advise the Maharaja of Brunei in his campaign against the Dayaks of the river. You find an old cannon from the days of Tipo Saib and get it back in working order. You train a squad of devoted Malayans whose teeth are blackened with beetle. In a skirmish near the coral reef, old Sampan, his teeth blackened with beetle, shields you with his own body. I gladly die for you, Seven Seas Jim. Good old Sampan, farewell, my friend. Now you're famous in the whole archipelago, from Sumatra to Port-au-Prince. You trade with the English, too. At the harbor-master's office in Darwin you're registered as Kurtz, and now you're Kurtz to everyone, only the natives still call you Seven Seas Jim. One evening, as the girl caresses you on the veranda, and the southern cross shines brighter than ever overhead, ah, so different from the great bear, you realize you want to go back, just for a little while, to see what, if anything, is left of you there. You take a boat to Manila, from there a prop plane to Bali, then Samoa, the Admiralty Islands, Singapore, Tenerife, Timbuktu, Aleppo, Samarkand, Basra, Malta, and your home. Eighteen years have passed. Life has left its mark on you. Your face is tanned by the trade winds. You're older, perhaps also handsomer. Arriving, you discover that all the bookshops are displaying your books in new critical editions, and your name has been carved into the pediment of your old school, where you learned to read and write. You are the great vanished poet, the conscience of a generation. Romantic maidens kill themselves at your empty grave. And then I encounter you, my love, with those wrinkles around your eyes, your face still beautiful though worn by memory and tender remorse, 
I almost pass you on the sidewalk. I'm only a few feet away, and you look at me as you look at all people, as though seeking another beyond their shadow. I could speak, erase the years, but to what end? Am I not even now fulfilled? I am like God, as solitary as He, as vain, and as despairing, unable to be one of my creatures. They dwell in my light, while I dwell in unbearable darkness, the source of that light. Go in peace, then, William S. Famous, you pass and do not recognize me. I murmur to myself, to be or not to be. And I say to myself, Good for you, Belbo, good work. Go, old William S., and reap your meed of glory. You alone created. I merely made a few changes. We midwives who assist at the births of what others conceive should be refused burial in consecrated ground, like actors, except that actors play with the world as it is, while we play with the plurality of make-believes, with the endless possibilities of existence in an infinite universe. How can life be so bountiful, providing such sublime rewards for mediocrity?'